Lord, thanks for your many blessings and for the blessing of this confession. We pray you'll help us as we reflect on it and study it, to draw from it uh, that help that we need to, to live well for you. In Christ's name, amen. So we're in chapter 20, and the title of the chapter is Of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. So we just uh, got through the chapter on God's law, so now we're uh, entering into this chapter. This is a chapter that I think will give us a lot to, to talk about. <clears throat> so um, the, first, the first article to the chapter reads, The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers... By the way, it's, uh, if you're looking for the confession, it's in the back of the hymnal. So if you want to follow along, I forget to mention that each time we're together, but you can find it there. Um, and it's, you know, online a million places. You know, you can find it on your phone. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also in their face, uh, I'm sorry, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. So that's all one sentence. Uh, goes on, all which were common also to believers under the law. That's an interesting statement that maybe folks wouldn't have uh, imagined be, you know, being the case. But under the New, uh, New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected, and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did, nor, did ordinarily partake of. Okay, so a lot, to, a lot to, to address here. So any of that uh, strike you as uh, sort of new to you? Or is it all uh, kind of going over material you, you've thought about before? Well, we'll dive in and look at each of the each of the clauses here. So liberty, let's think about that. Liberty is, an, is, a, is a word that's worth reflecting on, on its own uh, because sometimes we use it uh, synonymously with other words. Can you think of some other words that we use that, that uh, we, you know, have some overlap with it? Freedom, freedom. yep, freedom. Uh, any, any other? License, okay. Yeah, like James Bond. I have a license to kill. <laughs> All right, anything else? Now, uh, there are, I think, uh, subtle distinctions that we can make when it comes to words that are uh, close in meaning. Uh, here's a thought. Um, if a word was really the exact same thing, in other words, referring to the exact same thing, why have two words? 
right? <laughs> so the fact that we, we hold on to words may, it gives us an indication that there are subtle distinctions that are, are true, that uh, the words express subtly different things, in other words, uh, sometimes significantly different things. So if we think about uh, the distinctions between, say, law, I'm not law, I mean uh, liberty, and, say, license, uh, can you think about maybe what those could be? What, you know, what are the things that are, that are unique to each word? Yeah, David. I don't know if I'm right, but a license gives you a specific thing to do where a liberty gives you uh, a lot more, a lot more uh, space. space. Yeah, a lot more space. So, like, I've got a license to drive. You know, I've got, I just, just got my Washington State driver's license after two years. <laughs> Yeah, so finally I can say I've got my, so now I've got to get my, 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 you know, Jeep registered in the state of Washington. And I was told that in order to register my, my, my Jeep in the state of Washington, I had to first get my license. So that's why I did that first. By the way, it was, went pretty, pretty well. I mean, it was probably the most efficient uh, experience I've ever had at the DMV. You know, when you think about the DMV, is that what you normally think of? Efficiency? No, but I had a, maybe I just wanted a good time, <laughs> you know, and they just were fully staffed and there were a few people in the room. You know, here's a thought. There are a lot of people out there who think that we just should, like, run our entire world as though the, the DMV is the most efficient thing you can, can you, know, uh, you know, give things to or entrust things to. Basically, socialism is just that, you know, you know putting the DMV in charge of everything. <laughs> That should be a sobering thought. Anyway, I've done my diatribe. So, uh, now, yeah, Steve. Well, with that socialism, there would be a lot less liberty. Well, okay, and that's an interesting thing to think about because sometimes socialists will uh, advocate what they're uh, promoting as a, as a kind of openness or sort of a way to experience more freedom. They won't use the term liberty. Liberty is a very, uh, uh, has a very distinct character that generally people on the left don't like. And I guess that's what I'm getting at. Are you, are you, have, have you ever had that kind of experience where you've talked to people on the left and they'll just avoid the word liberty just like it's got measles or something? You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think in a lot of those common, uh, well, in some of those contexts, what they describe as freedom may really be a lack of restraint. Yeah, yeah. Now, does liberty uh, seem to imply that, though? Does liberty, uh, as it's generally understood? Yeah. Liberty is, has fences. I'm sorry? Liberty has fences. Okay, it has fences. But how do the fences work? Well, it's so that your liberty doesn't infringe upon someone else's. Yeah, and so you've got an ordered liberty, right? But I think there's another feature to this that I, that I want to get at. Because even when we think about establishing fences, we're relying on, a, on, a, on a, an external authority to restrain us. Yeah? Uh, with liberty, we have to have personal responsibility. That's it. That's exactly what I was getting at. So liberty implies personal responsibility, that you are taking you know, responsibility, responsibility for your actions. Uh, socialists, um, when they promote freedom, they're talking about sloughing off your, the consequences of your actions onto other people. <laughs> so you're free to do as you please because somebody else is paying the bill. I mean, I've actually literally heard them say stuff like that. Not quite that baldly, but that's the implication. 
Uh, and you see it, you know, going back to Rousseau. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the man that my friend Glenn Sunshine would like to kill, shoot twice and then beat him with the gun. <laughs> but are you familiar with Jean-Jacques, the other man from Geneva? Were you aware that he was born in Geneva? That he was surrounded by Calvinists his entire life? <laughs> it's, it's true. So anyway, uh, he had five children. Didn't take responsibility for any of them. Uh, just kind of walked away from them and, and actually said it's the responsibility of the state to take care of those kids. That's the kind of freedom that uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, cherished. Freedom from consequences. Freedom from the you know, sort of the responsible sort of behavior that typified the bourgeoisie, you know. Yeah? Was he the one who wrote uh, Noble Savage? Well, he talked about the Noble Savage. Yeah, that was uh, something. So um, there are a lot of things, but social contract and other kinds of things that come out of his, his work. Uh, I haven't spent much time in Rousseau. It's just too distasteful. Uh, but anyway, so, so liberty implies uh, personal responsibility. And that's how the word is used, and, that's a, and everybody knows it. So when the Founding Fathers talked about liberty, they weren't talking about freedom in the, in the, the sense that a lot of folks uh, today think of. Uh, they're thinking about, you're responsible for your actions. Uh, and uh, there's good and there's bad to that, right? So if you're responsible for your actions and you've done something praiseworthy or something that leads to your profit, well, then you should receive the, the benefits of that behavior, right? Um, so liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin. So guilt, now what are we referring to here? I think that for a lot of folks, when they think about guilt, they tend to think of it in very subjective terms. You know what I'm getting at? I feel guilty. So there's no problem if I don't feel any guilt. You know? So in other words, uh, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a kind of a, an equ- so things have been equated with each other. If you don't feel guilty, you're not guilty, uh, I think, in a lot, of, in a lot of minds. But you can actually be guilty and not feel guilty. We have a term for people like that. Sociopath. <laughs> you know, a sociopath is a person who doesn't have any sense of, you know, sort of uh, an inner compass. Uh, in fact, maybe kind of deadened uh, to it, and sometimes sociopaths to sort of uh, stir up a kind of uh, inner. Because sociopaths, in, in terms of what I've read about soci- sociopathology, there's a kind of inner deadness, uh, and they they kind of are looking for experiences to sort of excite sort of the the you know sort of this inner numbness or sort of address this inner numbness. That's why sometimes uh, they'll resort to all just atrocious and awful acts um, in quest for an experience. Really, that's, that's why we should lock them up, <laughs> you know, because they're dangerous. A, a genuine sociopath is a dangerous person. Um, but anyway, uh, guilt of sin here, the implication, I think, is there's an objective guilt. Um, if you didn't feel guilty for you know, running through the stop sign, it doesn't matter. You ran through the stop sign. 
you know, that was not something that the law permits, uh, and it's a dangerous act, and you should be fined whether you feel like, you know, that's a bad thing or not. So uh, I think that's part of this. Uh, the condemning wrath of God. Now let's think about the wrath of God. So I think um, when people hear the word wrath, what, what, kind of, what comes to mind for a lot of folks? Evil. Evil. So, uh, so in other words, people who are wrathful or evil? No, only those people who kill are evil. Okay, so wrathful killing people are evil. Okay, other thoughts? I think I heard somebody else. Punishment. Punishment? Wrath and punishment? So, and that would be punishment for a good reason. So wrath would be a punishment for a good reason. Yeah, David? Well, wrath seems to connotate a subtle indication that this is more than just spanking your child because they got out of line. This is like, I'm going to not only kill you, I'm going to turn you into dust. Yeah, so... It, I, I, I kinda, that's what I'm kind of getting at. I'm, tr- I'm not getting at the technical definition, but sort of the more, I think, broad uh, sense that you know, we see in, in our culture. So like, like you're going on the street and just do the you know, man in the street interviews and say, uh, tell me what the word wrath means. I think for a lot of folks, they would, they, they would define it, not the way that has been defined here so far, which is, you know, I think, uh, worth noting. But I think for a lot of folks, it would be like out of control. You're out. Of, you're, just, you're just so angry. You're just out of control. That's what I think a lot of folks. You, you're, you're shaking your head, Leanne. But are you shaking your head because you because you disagree with that? Definition? I wouldn't define wrath. Wrath is extremely calculated. Okay. Okay. So wrath to me is chilling, cold. Exactly what he said, but planned and extremely calculated. Okay. So revenge is a dish best served cold. <laughs> okay. So, so we have a couple of thoughts. So, so now, Leanne's uh, re- reflections on the word, I think also give us a sense that there's something bad to this. I guess that's what I'm getting at. Well, I think the consequences for having, for disobedience. Okay, consequences for disobedience. But you're biblically informed. I guess I'm trying to get out into the, to the mindset of a person who doesn't share our convictions about Scripture and stuff. I think that in the, just the general population, wrath uh, is not considered ever justified. You think of a king who cuts off someone's head? Yeah, yeah, king who cuts. And, you know, maybe people would have a problem with kings who do that. Well, they go and watch it and cheer. Well, according yeah. to the movies. Yeah, well, maybe just for entertainment value. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess what I'm getting at is that I think we need to make a case for wrath. I'm not trying to dismiss wrath. I'm just, I just think that when we... So let me give you an example of, of another word that I think is misunderstood and uh, often used as, a, as an excuse not to sort of entertain the Christian faith. I was doing street evangelism in Harvard Square years ago, and I got into a conversation with an atheist on the street, and he said, I'm not going to be a Christian because the God you serve is a jealous God. He said it actually that way. I was like, a jealous God. I was like, can you define jealousy for me? He couldn't. It just kind of like, it just had a, a bad 
vibe to him. That's it. I think that what he th- thinks of as a as you know, as jealousy is a is a is a husband who's just kind of lost touch with reality, and is is just controlling and freaky, and you know follows his wife around and, and beats people. That, that, I think that was his notion <laughs> of jealousy. But what is jealousy? I mean, Scripture does you know render uh, you know the Hebrew and the and the Greek. As jealousy, so what is it? What is it? Can you det- so let, here's another way to think about it because I think another way people kind of confuse things is they, they again they they uh, consider envy and jealousy as synonymous, but they're actually not. They're actually quite distinct things. So what is envy? Envy is when you see something that someone else rightfully possesses and you'd like to have it and wish it was yours. That's envy. Jealousy is when there's something that you rightfully possess that somebody else is trying to take from you, and you say, no, that's mine. So God being a jealous God means these people are my people. So there's Bad, Bad Leroy Brown. You remember the song, Bad, Bad Leroy Brown? That's a great song. Bad, Bad Leroy Brown. (laughs) Man in the whole... (laughs) I'm not going to say it. <laughs> but anyway, uh, what happens to Leroy? Do you remember what happens to Leroy in the song? He gets beaten to a pulp. That's <laughs> Leroy in the song. And what, why, why is he beaten to a pulp? Because he's in a, a bar and he sees a, a girl named Doris. And that girl looked nice. <laughs> but he didn't realize that she was the wife of a jealous man. <laughs> <laughs> and so when, when he makes advances on Doris, he has to, gets a tap on the shoulder and says, that's my wife, and then there's a fight. And Leroy looks like a puzzle with a couple of pieces gone <laughs> by the time it's done. <laughs> so uh, that's jealousy. Now, true, jealousy can be freaky weird. I'm not saying that it's always justifiable or, or sort of, um, you know, exercised or sort of expressed in the right ways. I think that there are freaky, controlly people in the world, and uh, that's a problem. But when we think about it, with, and when I defined it to, to that way for that guy on the street, he just changed the subject. That's the way it always works. He just, <laughs> just changed the subject. Anyway, but, you know, kind of getting these things right. So anyway, how do we get there? Well, the wrath of God is something, I, I think that, uh, two, when we, when we think about wrath, um, there's a sense that we're, th- we're talking uh, with regard to God uh, in a kind of analogical way. So when we think of like the uh, wrath of Thor, you know, you know, that's not necessarily what we're talking about. We're talking about something that's, I think, uh, Expressed in a holy, by a holy God. In other words, it's not um, something that uh, resembles a, a guy who's out of control. Yeah. I think the world thinks the world, word wrath means violence. Yeah, yeah. I think that's another thing about it. Yeah. Violence has no goal, but violence itself. Wrath actually has a goal. Yeah, wrath would be to correct, uh, to punish. So there's a retributive d- dimension to that. 
Yeah, uh, Christopher, I saw your hand there. Yeah, I think you know, as much as people may object to the term wrath, I think even the most secular people feel that it is necessary in some sense. Yeah. They, they feel the need to get bent out of shape, wrathful about wrong that they see in the world. And I think without, if you live in a world that we recognize as violent yeah. and there is wickedness, there needs to be righteous wrath yeah. to set things right in the end or you cannot have justice. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is, this is an interesting thing because um, some, uh, some people who, who thought about the subject of, of justice have uh, maintained that uh, justice is kind of, uh, it's kind of depends upon anger. Uh, in other words, anger is justifiable, and then that anger is justified or, or, is, or is, is an expression of justice. In other words, you become angry when you've been violated. When you, when you feel like something's been done to you that, that uh, breaches a boundary or uh, takes something from you that's uh, rightfully yours or you get my drift. So the response of anger in those situations and the quest for justice is uh, uh, a demonstration that we are living in an ordered uh, world that should be just. Yeah, Tom? Is that, is that where they get the idea, no justice, no peace? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. There's there, there's that connect. Sometimes you see that on in bumper stickers, you know. Uh, and often it's uh, people on the political left who've got that bumper sticker and use that term. Uh, but I think there's a, there's some truth in it. That um, so like when we think about the word shalom, uh, shalom is a very rich word, and it's it means peace. But it's not a, just a simply, a, a simply the absence of conflict. Uh, it's uh, a, set, a, a, a set of uh, conditions in which uh, justice is uh, not just recognized, but is actually uh, ordered things. If you get my drift. Yeah, David. Isn't that like in Judges when or before judges when they are uh, uh, defeating the Canaanites and they get defeated and the land was at rest. Yeah. It was at peace. Right. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a sense in which um, the, the work of a king was to bring, the, bring about peace or bring peace, but it was, uh, it was accomplished through establishing boundaries and that often meant fighting. So there's this, you know, that great episode or that great introduction to the situation with, uh, which, in which David sins, uh, commits adultery and, uh, with Bathsheba. And it, it notes it was spring, when the time when kings go to war. It's like baseball season or something. Actually. It's uh, that time of year. It's time for war. <laughs> and, uh, but David was at home. He was taking, taking a break. He's a little tired of, the, of that kind of living, that kind of work. And so he was taking a break. And then so this is an occasion for injustice. But yeah, so when we think about the Pax Romana, uh, the peace of Rome was secured through conquest. The Pax Americana, which may be coming to an end, uh, was also the outcome of a conflict. But it was also the outcome of a constitution. 
Well, uh, what do you, I guess what I'm, I'm thinking about peace Americana is like the, the United States government kind of like policing the globe. I think of the wrath of God differently than I think of the wrath of man. The wrath of God to me is an intrinsic natural disposition to a reaction towards sin. And so God could not not be wrathful towards that kind of thing. And it's against his nature and therefore also something that he revealed to us about his nature in the law of God. And that's why I'm saying Lex Rex or Rug first thing is like this liberty has been it's an interesting thing here too also is the word said Christ hath purchased. So Christ hath purchased uh, with the shedding of his blood these certain things that follows that I think are unequivocal. In other words, they don't depend upon our responsibility, actually. <clears throat> I don't think we have to be responsible to acquire uh, the, the, the negation of the condemnation of the wrath of God. I don't think we need to be responsible. He makes us responsible in other the other parts of the section. I think there's a difference between this kind of liberty, you know, we always think of liberty, well, I can do what I want. This kind of liberty is, is taking us away from a lot of the, in a word, his wrath. And that in, involves, you know, all these things that are listed here. And then positive things also that unequivocally enter us into, we all, all of a sudden become responsible for. But I believe that Christ died for us. So this is a limited atonement doctrine I'm trying to espouse here. And that when he died for us, I died. And then, so I was I'm free from the guilt. I'm free from the condemnation. I'm free from the consequences of sin. All of that. That's what I think. But, I mean, that's just victory. Well, I think that's true. We're kind of combing it out here. Yeah, I, I see the comb. <laughs> but what I'm saying is I, I, I don't think... When we think of Christian liberty, we we immediately go to Romans 14. You know, and that is part of it. But the liberty that God has purchased through Christ for us is access to the throne of grace. And, and well, let's let's think a little bit about that term purchase. That's a word that we just kind of s- sort of glided over. But maybe we ought to spend some time there. But I saw another hand. I don't want to. Yeah, Mark. Um, think about being under God's wrath and curse the curse coming at um, original sin here at that creation and thinking about the day that you eat of it you shall surely die they change I mean they spiritually die but then you have murder you have violence and ultimately the entire death of the whole world and God saves out of it one household that he floats on a boat as the rest of it is buried underneath our feet today. I think of that as wrath. That that, him saying the day you eat of it you shall surely die if you take the understanding that I'm saying here, that was going to lead ultimately to the death of the whole world except for one household because of the promise that he had made to actually save people, you know, and, and, and send a, but in terms of, that's what I think of when you're going through this in terms of um, 
the original wrath of God being revealed and how we purposefully, as Peter says, um, do not remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's all, I think, really sound. Therein lies the limit I was referring to. You can't, you can't really say what I said, really, without marching this garden with that, because that was a natural inclination, disposition of the nature and character of God. When man sinned, that was it. The gap yeah. was there, there are a couple of things here that I think are hard for us to hold together, but I think are both true. One is, is that this is a personal thing in the sense that we have a personal God who is acting. On the other hand, it's his nature, uh, which is just the case. So you could think of it, and I've heard it put this way, that uh, God's holiness is, it could be likened to the prevailing wind of, of reality. And when you set your sails to that wind, it's what carries you along. Sin is setting yourself against that. And you're experiencing the, the power of God's holiness uh, in a way that uh, is really uh, taking its toll on you, you could say. You know, in other words, God's wrath is something that um, is just being at odds with the holiness of God. That, that seems to imply it's just a force, and that's where I'm, I'm not willing to go. I'm not saying it's just a force. There's a personal character to it, but you can say that there is, it's both and. I think it's also a legal character. So in the legality and the legal mind of God, it's, you know, in the day you eat of this, you shall die. Yeah. Well, I, I want to spend a little time on this term or this word purchased uh, because what it brings to mind for me is the book of Judges. So I, I talked about this a little while back. So there's a covenant that God makes with Israel. And when the covenant is violated, when the Israelites uh, sin and go and pursue other gods, we're told that God sells them into the hands of their enemies. So he says, you know, you're my possession. Okay, you want to serve those guys? I'll sell you to them. Let's see how you like it. (laughs) And then after a while, after they're experiencing the consequences of uh, being outside of God's covenantal protection, uh, they cry out, you know, and God purchases them back. He takes them back, but there's a price that's paid. And it's, um, you know, the, the work of the judge to purchase them back. And this is why, you know, when you look at the book of Judges, it, it's a fascinating book when you think about it, isn't it? It's a really tough book to preach through because you get to the end and you're like, there's a mixed audience here, lots of little kids. Should I <laughs> read this part? <laughs> that kind of thing. I had a debate with some folks about this the other day. But uh, it's hard to find, a, like, a really... Uh, sterling character among the judges. They're like scud missiles. <laughs> it's like, and I'm going to launch, you know, you know, Samson at you. Now I'm going to launch, you know, Gideon at you. You know, and they don't end very well. You know, their own lives don't even end well. But you know, they are just like, uh, well, you know, like. Um, 
just these almost comic book like characters who just uh, just wreck havoc. They're like the Hulk, you know, just kind of like, you know, just you know. And then uh, Israel is you know uh, redeemed. But fascinating when you think about it. Uh, I, one of the things that this does for me is, you know, just at a practical level, when I think about what God is up to at any given time, I don't necessarily think that you, you can identify God's sort of instrument by his moral uprightness. Think about it. <laughs> yeah, it's great when, when you know, you've got a morally upright uh, person that God is using and it's his instrument like a Daniel or something. But we've got some pretty shady characters thrown in. <laughs> So what is God up to in this particular situation? Now, it doesn't mean you endorse everything that person is doing, right? But you can say God is using that person uh, as the instrument of his wrath in this particular situation, or at least that's what it appears to be, the, you know, how it appears. It doesn't mean you have to vote for the person. doesn't mean that you have to like the person. doesn't mean you have to follow them on social media. But, you, but it just may be <laughs> that God is using this really nasty dude, <laughs> To do something. Um, anyway, that's a crazy thought, but it's, I think, a justifiable one when if you look at the book of Judges. Yeah, David. Uh, that ties in, at least in my thought, when you said the word shalom, peace, it's all encompassing. I was thinking of, uh, for some reason, I was thinking of the body, and when it's healthy, it has white blood cells, and those white blood cells are constantly killing, but it's not in a position to do a full onslaught like a war. And so in our natural realm, when things are going good, God's ministers, uh, like yourself, are preaching the word of God, but he also has other ministers that are causing terror. And it's necessary for them to cause terror and even kill people who are violating his word to bring peace. Yep. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard truth. It's a hard truth. But this notion of being purchased is, I think, a, a, a worthwhile one to think about because with regard to, the, to this, it implies that uh, we have been bought back from the hands of those uh, uh, spiritual forces that were harming us, uh, that we were uh, under their power in some, in, in some measure. Uh, and God has delivered us from that. Um, so, con- continuing here, we've moved on uh, from the wrath of God, and um, then we're told that there's the curse of the moral law. I think we've already alluded to that in the course of our conversation. Uh, in, in being delivered from this present evil world, this is worthwhile reflecting on, too, um, and I've, I mentioned, I've mentioned it before, but it's worthwhile getting, you know, returning to it. So what do we do with the word world? So on one hand, we're told that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Then we're told elsewhere, anyone who loves the world, you know, is doing something they should stop doing. <laughs> so what is that all, what is that all uh, kind of getting at? Uh, any thoughts? Are we to love the world like God loved the world or not? Or are we talking about different things? Or what up? Yep. Okay. The, so he so loved the what he made? 
Oh, okay, you'd so love the, the, his, his people, okay? Yeah. I think if you love the world, that means that you love what the world can give you. Okay. And that's very wrong. Okay. You have to love God. He's, he's the creator of us. We, we live for God, then we die, and then we either go up to heaven or else we go down to hell. That's, that's true. Here's, here's, a, here's an approach that I've uh, taken that I think uh, may be worth considering. So the, the word that we translate into the English word world is the Greek word cosmos. So it's used, of course, uh, it's transliterated into English, but when we transliterate it into English, we generally are referring to outer space, right? The cosmos, you know, the cosmos, the outer space. But the, the word in Greek just meant order. So uh, when they refer to the cosmos, they're not just talking about a place. Like when we use the word world, we tend to think of it as a place. Okay, I'm on Earth. You know, right? uh, that's not what they were thinking. Uh, they were thinking there's a particular order. So you can have uh, the order that God established, for, and I think that's the world that God loves. So yes, people, but more than people, because we're told in you know, Romans 8 that the creation itself is groaning, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. So the, the uh, redemption that Christ secures, purchases, includes his elect, but it also includes the whole package. Right? So then uh, there's the order that we've instituted which is really a disorder, and that's what's condemned. So sort of like, you know, um, hey, think about it this way. You know, what, when, when a kid, uh, you know, uh, is, uh, you know, the beneficiary of a mom who cleans up after him and puts the room in order, that's the, that's the world she loves. She so loves the room as she has left it, <laughs> that uh, she's willing to do whatever has to be done to preserve that order. <laughs> right? And then there's the child, and the child's chaotic sort of behavior, and which leaves everything in a mess. And she hates that. <laughs> you know, she, her wrath <laughs> is felt uh, by the child for that. Uh, and if the kid says, but I love it this way, <laughs> then the child is condemned. <laughs> you get my, I'm having a little fun here, but uh, you, that's the sort of thing we're thinking about. There's the, there's the disorder, uh, and then there's the order. But, you know, from the perspective of the fallen child, the disorder is delightful. <laughs> anyway, I'm having a little fun, like I said. Um, the other thing about that is, you know, to, to kind of play out the illustration a little bit, uh, sometimes the kids mess up the room so much that it's just impossible for the, for the kid to get it back in order. You know, in other words, at that moment, the kid is helpless. There's no way. In other words, the kid is capable of far more disorder <laughs> than order. And uh, that's kind of like us, too. God, help. You know, we've really made a mess of this. Of course, the way I've expressed it uh, makes it seem more innocent than it actually is. But 
So uh, then the next thing is bondage to Satan and dominion of sin. But I like to think about this, this notion of being bound to Satan. So uh, the podcast I'm a part of recently did an episode uh, that's proven to be our most popular episode ever. It's kind of gone viral, and it's enti- entitled The Return of the Old Gods. And uh, it's been a really remarkable sort of thing because uh, actually somebody created an AI response to the, to the episode, which was really freaky. It was like ChatGBT, but it was animated. So there's like this, this Indian guy. And he's like responding to the show and, 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 and sort of, you know, attacking it, you know. And I saw it and I was like, this is crazy. What do you do with that? Do you like argue with a robot? You know, because <laughs> it, it's all it was. It was just a robot. <laughs> right. It's naming me by name. <laughs> it's naming Glenn Sunshine by name. And it's, you know, making arguments that actually sound very reformed. You know, the argument sounded very reformed, which was another thing that was really interesting about it. But, uh, but this notion that uh, Satan is real, I don't think sometimes in our tradition, the reformed tradition, that we give enough uh, sort of attention to that. Is, that. is that sound like I'm overreacting or does that sound right? No. You don't think it's overreacting? Yeah. So if Satan is real, um, then we ought to be... Th- aware that we might be in, you know, sort of uh, dealing with satanic activity. Maybe not even just the big guy. In other words, there are some others, <laughs> right? right? It's not like we're always dealing with the big guy. Um, so I guess, you know, how do, we, how do we deal with that? You know, what, normally I think what our mind goes to is the Pentecostals, our, our brothers and sisters in that world, and we sort of like, in case of emergency break glass, let's bring in the Pentecostals, let's have them do their thing. You know, march around the church a little bit, you know, <laughs> pray, cast out things. You know, you know I, I think that's cheating. I think we need to be able to own this as a reality ourselves and address it. And then the question is, how do we do it? Any, any thoughts? You have to believe in God strongly to be aware that there's evil in the world. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's you have to believe in God to be aware that there's evil in the world. I think that's right. Although, one of the things that I've noticed here, and this is interesting, is that there are people who are coming to Christ right now uh, who are people that you think are the last people who ever would, and it's because of evil. So, like, what we were actually responding to is uh, a, a, a piece written by Naomi Wolf. And if you know who Naomi, Naomi Wolf is... She was uh, one of the kind of the best known secular feminists of the last 20 years. And she's moving to Christ. In fact, she's actually uh, on her, her daily blog reading through the Geneva Bible out loud and recording it and, and reflecting on it. Yeah. I just think that you, you mentioned this on the podcast, but I'm just repeating you guys, but prayer to me is the greatest weapon against the principle of the power of the air. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. And maybe to add that, you know, Jesus said, this one can't be delivered without prayer and fasting. Yeah. So some real serious concern, consternation of prayer right. and fasting, as it were. Right. Yeah, David. I think I heard it this way, um, how we kind of like maybe not 
talk about saying, in fact, they might go, I mean, I'm a facetious, but like that Flip Wilson, you know, the devil made me do it, you know? <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. We, uh, we don't take, we take ownership of our sin. We understand this. Yeah. But we kind of downplay the reality yeah. of evil in the world. Yeah, I think that is, I think that's right. I think that one of the strengths of the Reformed tradition is the stress on personal responsibility. And I do think that that can pl- kind of lead to a, a blindness to these other things. Yeah. Jennifer? The scripture says to resist the devil and he will flee from you. So right. wouldn't that be about repentance and resistance? And that he says he'll always provide a way out for us when we are tempted. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. kind of like spiritual warfare because if you stop yourself. Now, let's think a little bit about that, because one of the challenging things about temptation is that it's tempting. In other words, uh, what we're dealing with is, an, is a malicious intelligence that knows our weaknesses and has a way of sort of aligning itself with our flesh. So we're actually warring against ourself as we're resisting the devil. You get my point? And that's one of the reasons why it's so hard. Uh, if it were just simply, you know, this, you know, sort of, you know, evil force that had no, that didn't know how to make an appeal to our, our, you know, our base, baser selves, then it'd be just like, oh yeah, you're obviously evil. But there's always something that's being dangled in front of you that's appealing. And he's like, yeah, I really do want that after all. Yeah. So Mark, Mark and then David. Yeah, yeah I think in terms of, I don't think we take our reform doctrine seriously in the sense that we're dead in sin mm-hmm. and then we are incapable of coming to God apart from him raising us from that dead state yeah. where we are slaves to sin and have our minds renewed and so when you think through that really we are we are subject to either the truth of God to have our minds renew, renewed by the word and the spirit or we live under the influence of the father of lies. And I think we think of ourselves as too much as autonomous in that world of not understanding that we are really under the ideas being being given to us by either God or Satan. And scripture doesn't leave any room for anything other than that. Yeah, that's a great point. So yeah, there's like no neutral, there's no Switzerland. (laughs) <laughs> no Switzerland. Actually, maybe there's not, not even Switzerland because Switzerland was pursuing its own interests the whole time. <laughs> yeah, you want, you want some safe place to put that gold, don't you, Frenchie? You want some safe place to put that gold, eh, our friend in Germany? <laughs> We've got the place. <laughs> anyway, yeah, David. I'd be interested to hear your uh, thoughts on my observation. So since I came from a background that was non-reformed, what I did notice in, in learning from reformed teachers and eventually going into reform, that the circles, demographically speaking, are considerably different if you're talking uh, specifically education. Okay. And so there is something very interesting about the, the, the less education, meaning less college, right. there is a wider acceptance especially of the supernatural and with the common folk. And what I have noticed is that the more intelligentsia you you get, the more adverse they are to that thought. 
Well, yeah, there, and, and what does that mean for, say, the Reformed who put such an emphasis on education? I think that's a good, that's a good point. Um, I think that uh, there's some... Um, having, having hung out with you know, uh, highly educated non-believers and believers, I think that one of the things uh, that sort of is at work is a strong need to feel like you're in control, that, you're, that your intelligence is uh, able to secure your interests fully. And this is one of the reasons why um, the last thing that a highly education, ed- educated person wants is to be considered dumb. I mean, that's the last thing. That, that, by the way, this is one of the things that I thought was sort of like Trump's um, Trojan horse. He was willing to let you think he was dumb. He's very uh, smart, but he lets you think he's dumb. Why? Because you lower your guard. He's just, you just play into his hands every single sneaking time. <laughs> and then he's got you. You think you're so smart. I got you. I got you. I got you. He just kept doing it. Still doing it. <laughs> but uh, because of that, uh, we are dumb. So you know, the, the Apostle Paul you know, makes note of this, and John does as well, that um, thinking they were wise, they became fools. So one of the quickest ways to be really stupid is think you're not. If you get my drift, because you become blind to your own ignorance, uh, you assume the best uh, all the time about your intelligence. And, and I think that the supernatural uh, introduces a dimension of reality that cannot be mastered just by intellectual development. If you get my drift. Yeah, Ian. So we've talked before about, you know, creation is without excuse. And the reason that we're all here is because the Holy Spirit awakened our spirits to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So where did that go in the course of our 30 or 40 years of being Christians? Did we forget that the Holy Spirit... I never would have come to Christ without the Holy Spirit. I had no clue. I was an empty... Well, I think what happens, uh, this is kind of related to this matter of of demonic activity. I think that for many uh, well sort of uh, uh, catechized reform folks, they would say, absolutely right, Leanne, absolutely right. But I just never think about the spiritual influence of the dark forces. I only think about the spiritual influence of God. Uh, But there's a kind of blindness to to that other other reality. Um, now, one of the more, I think, refreshing things that I've been able to witness over the course of my life is I've known some very uh, intellectually um, accomplished people who have uh, not only come to Christ, but have actually fully bought into the reality of evil and spiritual powers at work in the world. And it's, it's almost like... Uh, you know, you, you made your, you know, the comment you made, David, about uh, education and what you expect, sort of, uh, who, who are the people who are open and who are not. Well, when you come across a person who is like a world-class intellectual and they, they just sort of like go right into the discussion of, well, this could be demonic activity. You know, you're like, really? 
<laughs> I never would have thought you'd say something like that. Yes, not some, that's not the M.O. for people of your background. You know, that's, you know. So like when Naomi Wolf, who has degrees from Yale, uh, I think Georgetown, um, she's, she's lectured at Harvard. I'm not sure if she has one. Maybe she has a degree from Harvard. But anyway, she, she's written for The Guardian, New York Times, all this kind of stuff. And she's like, there is demonic activity in the Western world right now. <laughs> Naomi Wolf, what's happening? <laughs> she's just like, it's the only explanation. It's the only thing. And um, anyway, she, she delivered. So if you're interested in kind of getting a little more insight into why she is kind of moving in the direction she is, she gave a, a, a lecture at Hillsdale College of all places that's available online that you can watch where she goes into a deep dive on a lot of things. But she doesn't get into the demonic in that one as much as she gets into just this sort of something crazy going on in the world. I can't figure it out. Yeah, uh, Naomi. Yeah, so I guess some of this I'm just kind of uh, thinking through. and um, So I guess I'm just saying that as uh, maybe hoping you'll give me a little grace in this. But... Um, I have, because I'm somewhat new to the Reformed um, thinking and, and all the teachings and, and really have not gone through it all, but my um, assumption has been that Reforms tend to look at uh, the demonic war as kind of a past dispensation. Yeah, yeah. We would never use that term, but that's the way we behave. Yeah. Which is no different than a lot of other yeah. churches and denominations. Um, it, it just varies. Mm-hmm. But I, I think, you know, what Dave said, I, I would agree with it in that um, it, I do see it as the intellectual kind of think they're above that and probably excuse it as having been a past dispensation. Um, That's what the chat GBT said in its response to our show. <laughs> the uh, AI. <laughs> yeah, Mark. What was she just said? He I called think on it has me. To... He didn't call on you. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that I agree with that in, in our modern form, yeah. but it's not, That's not consistent yeah. with our confessions and our creeds. Yeah, right. That they are, they are not. So I'll let him determine whether you. Can talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll give you we'll give you like a minute because it's about time to wrap up. I agree with what he just said, and yeah. I think that that's a really valid question, though. Yeah. And a post-millennial kind of framework also is kind of like, okay, the chicken's dead; he's still flopping around. Yeah, I'm not seeing that too much. I still, it's like, I see evil all the time and yeah. it's intellectual properties it's and I, I agree with Mark wholeheartedly <laughs> 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 on that I think I'll go out of turn I the modern influence <laughs> the modern influence is the atheistic impulse that can take over the world with Darwinism yeah. and it, it exists particularly in academia yeah. and that's yeah. and like as you pointed out we're kind of coming out of that yeah. at, at this certain stage but what we've all grown up in is a yeah. world where um, 
the majority of educated people are comfortable with saying there is no God, there is no supernatural. Right. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's right. Everything is to, to, is uh, to be explained through you know his, historical processes or material causes and things like that. Yeah, we should wrap it up. Uh, okay, which is just the point was is that we we battle a fallen nature, a fallen world, and a fallen angel. Yeah. But we can't blame everything on a fallen angel. Yeah. And and I think that maybe some of that you know because yeah. there is a fallen world that we're right. we're battling and, and and our fallen nature. So sometimes there's an overcorrection. You fall off the other side of the horse. Yeah. And then how do we how do we identify which is the issue that we're dealing with? I think too that that Trinity, that vile Trinity, is often all present at the same time, you know, kind of sort of get all out. Then David, oh, the last. So we're, a, we're dwelt with the spirit. And, you know, I think sometimes intellectual reform, really smart people are a little embarrassed of what the spirit might do. And well, you, yeah, that's right. Look at David. Sure. Yeah. He's dancing down the street and his own life looks, yeah, gives right. him that look. We don't do that. Where I come from. <laughs> Yeah, we don't do it here either. <laughs> well, we should wrap it up. Anyway, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this uh, time to reflect on important matters. We pray, Lord, that this is, will be more than just uh, an intellectual exercise, but there'll be fruit, spiritual fruit, moral uh, fruit in our lives uh, because of it. In Christ's name, amen.